If you're looking for a European destination where it's fun being the only American around, then today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves is just for you. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and coming up in the hour ahead, prepare to be thoroughly charmed by an entrepreneurial guide from Sofia, Bulgaria. Luba Boyanin is bursting with pride for her homeland. She's here to let us in on the adventures you can find in Bulgaria, where powerful cultures have intersected on the Balkan Peninsula for centuries. The stuffed pepper is it's a symbol of Bulgaria, probably. And to help us observe Earth Day, photographer James Martin joins us to describe the treacherous places he trekked to get amazing photographs of some of the world's most dramatic ice formations. He uses his camera to document the importance of icy environments like glaciers and permafrost, not just for wildlife, but for the sake of the planet we all call home. From down-to-earth Bulgaria to the power of a glacier, it's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. You may recognize our first guest today on Travel with Rick Steves from an interview we did with her a couple years ago. Back then, we got a surprisingly good phone line to her office in Bulgaria. Today, Luba Boyanin joins us in our studio on her first visit to the United States. She's here to tell us about the many surprises Bulgaria has in store for visitors and how you can best experience them. And later in the hour, nature photographer James Martin describes the humbling beauty and power of ice in its many shapes and colors. He trekked to remote icy corners of the world from Antarctica to the Andes and Himalayas, all to illustrate why it's so important to reverse the rapid disintegration of glaciers and polar ice. I've long had a personal fascination with Bulgaria. Part of it is because I traveled there so many times back in the Cold War, and it's this mysterious little country that was so subservient to the Soviet Union that they joked it was going to apply to be the 16th Republic. And I've visited many times since then, and it has changed a lot. We made a TV show a few years ago, and it's probably the show of ours that has had the biggest problem with what we shot has changed in the last decade the most, because Bulgaria is really thriving now. It's making huge strides as it moves into the European Union, and it gets good with capitalism and the freedom that it won just 20 years ago. Very few Americans visit Bulgaria. Very few Americans have ever received an email from Bulgaria or even know a Bulgarian person. And we're so happy to have in our studio, coming to us from Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria, Luba Boyanin. Luba, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me here to come. This is my first visit to America. This is your first time in the United States. First time I crossed the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) And for first time, Seattle is my first American town. So I say not many Americans go to Bulgaria, but maybe uh, America is mysterious to you also. What what was your um, biggest impression as you've spent your first couple of days in the United States from Bulgaria? The same, that Americans are very similar to Bulgarians. Similar? Very similar. How? You know, I think because uh, here in America I feel that everybody knows each other for years and that everybody is relative of everybody. To travel in a shuttle from the airport to Edmonds, we, we talk with... Uh, People so you, in the shuttle, uh, and we even we can find the in common friends. Um, so I was very much surprised of that. The same is in Bulgaria. You take a train, you take a bus, and then you can have uh, 20 new friends immediately. So maybe in other parts of Europe, people are more formal. But what you're saying is in Bulgaria, people are um, particularly friendly. friendly. And not not that the other people are unfriendly, but there's an informality in our culture where we can be on first-name basis and we can be friends on the shuttle bus in from the airport. Yes. So you land in Seattle and you've got friends in the shuttle bus. Yes. Oh, that's a nice welcome. One thing different about Bulgaria from the United States, there was a recent survey and they asked Bulgarian people, what is the most important technical innovation for the home in the 20th century? And the Bulgarians took a vote and they said, not electricity, not TVs, not cell phones, but the... Chushkopek. <laughs> what is a chushkopek? A chushkopek saved our lives during the communist times. <laughs> Tell me what it is. <laughs> you know what is this? This is a special, um, it's, I cannot say machine, but this is uh, a special thing where, I don't know who designed, Bulgarian designed this, but you can roast the pepper very quickly. Myself, at the very beginning, I had in home uh, with my mother a chushkopek only for one pepper. So it is something like a cylinder. Uh, you put uh, in electrical 
or in the electricity. You plug it in. You plug it in, and then uh, after a few minutes, it's getting uh, in this circle, like a double cylinders, one inside, like a thermos. Okay. And you put the pepper inside, uh, and it's a special, probably you counting up to three minutes, and then you, you take out, the pepper is perfectly roast, we peel the pepper, and we uh, we make a preserves. With this pepper, we can make conserves for just with the salt. And you can make in the wintertime a dish, a traditional dish. is called chushki paneer, stuffed pepper with uh, cheese and eggs. You can make uh, pickles with the garlic vinegar mm. and uh, oil. You can make, a, I think, hundreds of dishes with the pepper. And this is something that... Uh, I think it, it developed and developed and developed. And at the moment in Bulgaria, there are pack of the four peppers at the same time. You can cook, you can four, cook peppers four peppers at the same time for a, a minute in a chushkupek. And, and these when are I big say green survive, and red peppers, right? Red, red or green. Red, red okay. we preferred red because we're doing this late autumn. Ah, okay. uh, around September, October, when we prepare our preserves. Preserves are important in the communist times because we we have not anything in the shops to, to buy. Oh, so you had to buy when the produce was available and then preserve it through yes. the bad times. For the, yes. And peppers could be preserved. Yes. Now, every time I've been to Bulgaria, and I've been there many times, when I get invited to a home and friends want to treat me very well, they make me a fine dinner, and the most important part of that dinner, I think, is stuffed peppers. Yes, yes. Tell me about your stuffed peppers. Oh, it's just, and I have a, a son student who studied in England, and any time when I come back to Bulgaria, I ask him what to prepare for you, and his reply is a stuffed pepper. The stuffed pepper is first, um, it's a very delicious, can be stuffed with many different ingredients, can be stuffed with a rice, only vegetarian rice, raisins, a lot of spices, traditional, can be stuffed with um, minced meat, it could be beef, veal, anything, pork, can be stuffed with um, just the cheese with eggs. And it's a symbol of Bulgaria, probably. It is. You go to the markets and you find people celebrating these beautiful peppers. I'm speaking with Luba Boyanin, and she flies to us all the way to Seattle from Sofia, Bulgaria. This is her first weekend in here in the United States. You mentioned that the uh, Chushkopek, our fancy little device that cooks four peppers at the same time, voted by Bulgarians as the most important technical innovation for the home in the 20th century. And I, when I read that, I thought, what's with that? And you sort of hit it. You said, this little gadget, this little machine that cooks peppers helped us survive the difficult times under the Soviet Union? Yes. How so? Because making preserves, we can have a lot of varieties of food in okay, the wintertime. Okay, so you get through the hard times with, yes. that, with the help of that yes. pack. Yes. You know, Rick, now we don't need this anymore because we have everything in our shops but people were still in and I am of my age of the 50s I still feel that I must do it otherwise I cannot survive the winter so this, <laughs> this is your tradition <laughs> and this I'm is still nice, doing this this is part yeah. of who you are yes. you're a you're a Trushkopek <laughs> using pepper eating Bulgarian <laughs> who remembers the hard times and celebrates the good times now if we go to Bulgaria it's a small country but it's a very diverse country and you have let's say 10 days to travel around. What are the most important stops for a tourist to make when they visit your country, Bulgaria? For the 10 days, of course, Sofia. We have to start with Sofia as it is a capital and has uh, one of the most beautiful museums or artifacts in the museum in Sofia mm-hmm. based. So that's the capital, uh, the big city, Sofia. Sofia, but also Sofia is the center of cultural life. So we have a lot of um, nice, wonderful performances, songs. Plovdiv is the main cultural city. So that's maybe the cultural two hours capital, to the east two by train. Two hours drive by bus or by train. So you get to and Plovdiv. It's very easy to get to Plovdiv. So Plovdiv, Plovdiv is the historical is a capital. Historical capital. Old, I would say it is a cultural capital today of Bulgaria. It has layers of history. When you are there, you can see layer after layer. You're standing in one place and you can see from the very beginning, from the Hellenistic Romans, Roman period, we have a wonderful uh, one of a few preserved Roman theater in Plovdiv. We okay, have we'll, we'll go back to Turkish Plovdiv in a minute. I, I want to get a big overview here. So first we city. go to the modern capital, Sofia. Then we go to the historical and cultural capital, Plovdiv. I cannot miss, yes, I cannot miss the Thracian tombs, the Thracian culture. And you can go to Kazanluk. This is the town around which uh, concentrated a lot of uh, newly excavated Thracian tombs. Who are the Thracians? Thracian. The Thracians were one of the local tribes who occupied the territory of nowadays Bulgaria. They lived they, from the 
3000 BC and their, their conquered kingdoms by the were the 5th to the 4th century, conquered by first by Macedonians, Alexander, Philip II conquered mm -hmm. them. Then they again succeeded to be independent and finally conquered by the Romans, but it took them 200 years to be conquered. So you can see Tracian tombs that would be yes. centuries before Christ in Bulgaria. Yes. And then what is another highlight? Of Bulgaria? Um, historically, if we say it's a medieval and we say uh, the town of Turnovo. 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 The capitals of Bulgarian kingdoms, uh, which uh, was a capital between 12th and the 14th century AD, was a brilliant town and everybody said after Constantinople, this town of the Balkan Peninsula this was the glorious is that the um, same as Viliko Turnovo? Viliko Turnovo. So that means old Turnovo, or what does Viliko means the great Turnovo. The great the Turnovo. Great Turno. Because this was the, the nickname of the town given by a lot of travelers and a lot ah. of uh, medieval people. Now, of course, you've got this uh, deep religious history in Bulgaria, and if you want to touch the religious soul of Bulgaria, where do you go? For the religious soul, I can go to the churches and monasteries. The monasteries who have a beautiful painted, like... Uh, um, everybody knows that uh, the, the Orthodox Christianity um, was uh, more mysterious compared to the Catholic Church, for example. In Orthodox Christianity, you can see all those mysterious details in the paintings, and this is why the monasteries were beautifully painted. So these Outside, are monasteries inside, painted from the Rila Middle Ages? Monastery. Yes. Rila Monastery, R-I-L-A. Yes. Rila, and that's up in the mountains. It's up in the mountains. It's very. This is the highest situated monastery with uh, the same scale, large monastery, it's the altitude of 1,100 Is a tourist meters. welcome to go to this very uh, yes. sacred place? Yes, yes. And But you need a special permissions to stay overnight because not everybody can stay overnight. But you actually can Rila. sleep in the monastery if you yes, need permission. Yes, uh, to sleep in the monastery. It's amazing. Of course, the conditions are not uh, very good. You know, well, it's it's monastic. simple, monastic. It's monastic. You and have to share a lot of things. And then if you want to just go to the Riviera and lay in the sunshine on the beach, you can't go to France, but where do you go? In the communist times, you went to... Oh, we gone to our beautiful Black Sea coast. So the Black Sea coast, you, do you have your own imagine. Riviera. imagine, yes, we have it with the sand that is like a fine powder, the sand, and you can lie directly on the sand. And the sea was warm and beautiful. So the Black Sea know, coast. The Black Sea coast. So and no, no, any dangerous fishes there, no dangerous spices. We'll talk about dangerous fishes later. <laughs> no. We're, no, there's no dangerous fishes on the Black Sea coast. We're talking with Luba Boyanin from Sofia, Bulgaria, giving us an insight into her fascinating country. We'll take your calls in a moment at 877-333-7425. Luba Boyanin is our guest from Sofia, Bulgaria, today on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll take your calls for Luba in a moment at 877-333-7425. And by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. To many Americans, Bulgaria used to be shorthand for a backward, impenetrable country. But today, as we're finding out from our guest Luba Boyanin, who operates her own tour company in Bulgaria, there are centuries of cultures and civilizations intersecting in this fascinating corner of the Balkans, which just makes a visit there that much more intriguing. 
Luba's website, by the way, is lubatours.com. That's L-Y-U-B-A, tours.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Luba Boyanin joins us from Bulgaria. Luba, when we talk about your country, I think you've had a very challenging history, a difficult history, in part because you're, you're in a rough neighborhood. You're, you're just not in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, we would say here. <laughs> Tell me yes. about the countries that surround Bulgaria. Uh, to the south, we are neighbors with the Turks and with the Greeks, mm-hmm. Turkey and Greece. To the west, we are neighbors with um, former Yugoslavia, which today is separate of Macedonia and Serbia. And to the north, we are neighbors with Romania. To the east, we have a Black Sea coast. And today, what are the challenges for Bulgaria with your neighbors? Uh, we have a good relationship with our neighbors, excellent relationship. Uh, with the Greeks, as we are members of European Union, we travel to Greece without any borders, problems, anything. Just show your ID card and you travel without any, really, non-stop. So you are quite integrated into the European Union at this point. Yes, yes. To Macedonia and Serbia, we travel without any Oceanic. No borders no problems. anymore. Big no, there are borders, but, but no, very quickly no you can, you can pass. No visa. The same with Turkey. We don't need a visa to go to Turkey. Now, there was a big issue of corruption in your government, basically a lot of thugs from the communist time that kept power after you got your freedom. Yes. What's the latest on this? What are the frustrations and the challenges for the Bulgarian people with their current uh, government and people in power? Oh, in the current government, we have a prime minister who is the former police general, who was a bodyguard from the communist times of Zhivkov. Then he was a bodyguard of the king, and he became a secretary of the police. The bodyguard the and the police. And then now the he's the prime minister the prime of Bulgaria. Minister. Yes, he established his party. He used to be a mayor of Sofia, and his popularity in Bulgaria is very, very big. He has a strong hand. Really? To be honest, he yes. has a strong hand. Very strong hand, and uh, did he break the thumbs of all his enemies? Uh, he yes, he's starting to do this. Really? <laughs> so he's popular because he's yes. effective then. <laughs> yes, because uh, people were scared of corruption of uh, everything. What's going? So he's telling them law and, and order, no corruption. And he try, he try. Hope, hope he can succeed because it's very important. Because to there's succeed. quite a lot of mafia and the weightlifters weren't the uh, like the weightlifters uh, associated with the mafia or something like this. Oh, to be honest, uh, you know, in the communist times, Bulgarian the most famous sport was uh, weightlifting and wrestling. And most of the famous uh, weightlifters and wrestlers, they became bodyguards of quite famous uh, political communist leaders. And when the system, the, the regime collapsed, uh, those leaders pointed their guards as um, owners of the companies. They started the first business. They became the first businessmen. And uh, the way how they trade very often was not very clear, for example. So let me review this. You have your celebrity (laughs) weightlifters and wrestlers that we all saw in the Olympics back in the communist days. And these former athletes are smart enough to convert this little opportunity into real power and wealth. Yes, yes. And to this day, you've got this class of people? Some of them are already gone. Some of them are already uh, sent to another world, you know. What do you mean by that? <laughs> don't, don't speak to me in little little secrets here. And they they kill each other now, or they, somebody kill them. Oh, really? So there are some mysterious deaths yes, between exactly. these different powers. So so many movies can be done by Hollywood about their lives. Bulgaria is a land of mysteries yes. and uh, <laughs> of, of people disappearing and and uh, former wrestlers becoming uh, bodyguards, becoming prime ministers. Yes. Fascinating. I'm joined by Luba Boyanin from Sofia. We're talking about Bulgaria. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And William's on the line from Miami, Florida. William, thanks for your call. Hey, uh, growing up as a, you know, as a kid in the, in the 60s, you know, I never thought we'd be able to visit these uh, Eastern Bloc countries in my lifetime. Let me ask you one thing about Bulgaria. They use the Cyrillic alphabet, right? Yes. That's one thing that scares me. When I go to Europe, I like to go by myself. I don't go on any tours. I just travel my, on my lonesome. Would I be able to get around Bulgaria just knowing English and a little bit of German? Yes. Nowadays, many young people, I think almost every one of the young people speaks English. So if you have any troubles with um, asking questions, directions, you can ask uh, every one of young people. Even the, the 10 years old can reply. Also, we now a country uh, nowadays as uh, members of the European Union, we must have the signs in both uh, Cyrillic and Latin. So, if you decide to drive, uh, will be easy because you can see the signs in the both in uh, so Latin. So, in, in our letters, in Latin characters, in the, in the Cyrillic. Yes. 
in now, this city. sounds a little ethnocentric, but why do you keep the Cyrillic when uh, it would be easier for your connection with the rest of the world to have Latin It's very letters? emotional for us. You know, the Cyrillic letters, we are proud of them as the, the brothers, Kirio and Methodius, who created the alphabet in the 9th century, they uh, they were from our land, so from Cyril, the land here. Cyril, the guy that Cyrillic is we named called for. Kirio. Kirio. Yes, uh, Cyril is how you pronounce in he English. He was a Bulgarian. They were, I cannot hardly to say Bulgarians because, you know, the nation came quite late, but they were born from the same land and their mother was Slavic, the father was uh, Greek. So they, they were bilingual and one of the most educated people of uh, Europe of that time was Kirio. He was like a professor in university in Constantinople and he was appointed by the emperor of Constantinople to create the alphabet. Originally, the alphabet has been created not for Bulgarians, but for people who lived in Moravia, uh, where Czech, Czech, close to Czech. Uh, so you think William can get around okay in Bulgaria? Yes. Would well, that just be in the larger cities like Sofia, or would that also be in the smaller towns also? Yes. You know what uh, the recent years, we, what we have? A lot of bed and breakfast, not very expensive, and a beautiful was established in a small villages around. So there will be not any problem for you to travel. You need just to have a look at the maps and to connect through internet to see some of the cities. And that's for the restaurants and everything too? They have the menus? Uh, yes, menu in most of the restaurants in the big cities is in both languages, Bulgarian and English. Uh, in a small villages still it's only in Bulgarian language, but um, like a lonely planet and other books can explain you more. So you can have no any troubles in Bulgaria and I'm sure you can repeat your visit to Bulgaria. And, William, I would recommend going over there with a spirit of adventure, going into a restaurant, try to find a restaurant that doesn't have English menus, and uh, let local people help you out. It's as, as Luba said, it's one of the most friendly and welcoming places, and I've been going there for 30 years, and I've certainly never gone hungry. <laughs> yeah, I imagine not. All right. Hey, thanks, William, for the call. Oh, thank you very Bye. much for the call. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And Dana's on the line in Thousand Oaks, California. Dana, thanks for your call. Sure. Um, I was kind of wondering... Um, I've been to Russia before now. Luba, that means love. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, cool. Do you need anything other than a passport to get into Bulgaria? Um, no. As an American, no. No, as an American, You're part of no. the EU? Yes, yes, yes. Well, Only a passport. No, required. no, no. no. The no. same thing as France or, or uh, Germany. And the last caller, he asked about getting around. Uh, literally, what is the way to get around? Is it buses or trains, or how does that work? Uh, we have a very well-organized bus system. Bus transportation is faster, very easy to, to travel from a place to place to village to village by buses. And, of course, we have a trains, but they are connecting the main cities. Yeah, Plovdiv to Sofia would Sofia, be by train. Plovdiv, Plovdiv, Burgas, Burgas, Varna, Varna. Um, I think Burgas, Varna, there is no train, but, no, but Varna, but Varna. But the buses. One of the basic things by train, I recommend to use the buses. A lot of Americans are disinclined to use the buses when they're traveling, but countries like Bulgaria have, or Portugal or Greece generally have an excellent bus system and a, and a meager train system. And if you're limiting yourself to the train, you're putting yourself at a huge disadvantage. Oh, I understand, because I, I, when I was in Spain, I used the buses a lot besides the other forms of transportation, and the buses were great. Yeah. Do you, are you on the Euro? No, not yet. We are in the Bulgarian level, but our currency has been connected with the Euro about 10 years ago. So we have uh, constantly the same uh, one euro. It's about two lever. So it's a constant. It doesn't change. So all the time is uh, no. And I hope same. Bulgaria keeps the lever forever because I love the name of their pennies. What do you call your pennies? Studinki. The studinki. Studinki. So there's a hundred <laughs> studinki in one lever. <laughs> Say it, oh, studinki. It's wonderful. Studinki. <laughs> all right, Dana. Have a good time in Bulgaria. Spasiba. But no, you, you, no, no, you are wrong. Russian. You are wrong. You already you made us the 16. Try to. <laughs> we say Dovizdane. Well, I learned something already. Well, thank you. Dovizdane. That's, okay. a, that's a funny thing. Uh, Luba was saying they made me the 16th Republic of the Soviet Union. Yeah, you don't want to speak Russian in Eastern Europe if you can help it. Is that true still? Um, to be honest, in Bulgaria, the, the people of my generation, all of them speak uh, quite well Russian because we studied in the school okay. Russian language but the young people today they don't speak they don't learn in the school Russian and they don't speak Russian Why unfortunately not? my son doesn't understand Russian language even. no interest um, it's like uh, like the opposition like a Russian language has been connected with the communist regime 
So this is your, the way, but uh, that was your to, colonial overlord. To, you don't want to, to learn say, that language. To say, but the Bulgarian language is very close to Russian language, and uh, my my father, who studied uh, before the communist regime, he studied obligatory. It was uh, obligatory uh, Russian language yeah. and one foreign language, another foreign language. And we say for Russian that this is not a foreign language, <laughs> but nowadays it's a foreign language. That was back in your father's day. They said uh, the biggest uh, animal in the world was the pig. Because the body was in Russia and the head was in Bulgaria, is that right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Do you yes. remember that saying? Yes, I remember that. <laughs> the pig was the, the biggest animal because it has the head in the R- Russia, in the Soviets, and the tail was in the back. <laughs> in the <laughs> no, no, because the head, <laughs> all of the good parts went to Russia, yes, right? Yes, yes. And yes, you had to yes. eat the head. Yes. Oh, that's an amazing, powerful statement. No, we eat, it, we, we eat not the head, we eat the. The tail. The tail and oh, the, the legs. Little, and the legs. Oh, the, the tail and the legs. And the, little, the, legs the little curly it. thing. Yes, yes. And the legs. So you had to yes. eat the feet and the tail. <laughs> yes. And all the it's g- a wonderful soup is made, Minway. <laughs> With the and feet and the tail <laughs> of a pig. You can taste, yes. <laughs> it's called pacha, and the so, same pacha you can eat. <laughs> so you're making the best <laughs> out of the tail and the feet. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> all of the good meat would go to Russia then. Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell me about the gypsy community in Bulgaria. The Roma community in Bulgaria, very interesting people, very nice. Very For me, they're very nice. As uh, I have been um, uh, greeted with a special diploma from the, the Roma community for a cultural um, association, try to help the Roma people for the, uh, to, how you say, as, as assimilate. Not, assimilate so with there's, the there's cultural a, assimilation. So cultural them. assimilation is the challenge for the Roma people? Uh, one of the one, one of, of the, the things we are trying to have a, a bridge to make a bridge between Bulgarian community and the Roma community, as many people in Bulgaria don't understand the Roma. You have to get close to them. You have to know. You have to be with the friends to them to understand them because they seem so very, um, very tough, very difficult, and especially in the the time of the transition, they have been connected with a lot of uh, thief robbery. The transition the from communism to from freedom. From communism to freedom. What percent of Bulgaria would you estimate as Roma people? Of, according to the official census, there could be 400 to 500,000, probably. Which would be 10% the police, of the society. The police has their own uh, counting, which pointed over 600,000, but the Roma themselves, they said they, they are about 1 million. One, the total po- population of Bulgaria is 7,600,000 now. So 10, 10% of the society is Roma. Even more. And Even uh, more you're saying that. that many people don't understand them and they think of the bad cliches of the yes. Roma people, but you're saying your experience, when you get to know them better, you appreciate them, you understand them. I appreciate them, them. And you can live with them well. And they're, they're living in a three different, uh, quite big groups. They have many different groups connected with, but I would say in general they were settled who have houses, who have some kind of profession, and they're well associated, they, they're well integrated in the society. We have a nomads, and we have a very low group of uh, pickpockets, of uh, So there's nomads beggars. and there's thieves, but there's the majority of the people are settling down and assimilating, yes. you're saying. Yes. Also, when you go to any country, there's a group of people or a city in that country that gets the bad jokes, the, the insulting jokes, the making fun of people. And when I was in a town called Gobrovo, Gabro, yes. Gabrovo. They have books about the jokes about the yes. Gabrovo people. Yes. Tell me a Gabrovo joke. Tell me about these people. <laughs> they they were stingy people. They're stingy. famous as a stingy, but they you know they were the one who sponsored a lot of cultural universities. Uh, they they sponsored the schools, the cultural homes. So they were really the first capitalists of Bulgaria. So they're cheapskates, and they're in, the, industrious, and they are into yes, education. So, that's the, but they, so they keep money, and the most popular is when you go to Gabrovu, the sign is welcome and well gone. They said they're the most happy when somebody, the guest, is going home. <laughs> and the cat, the symbol of Gabrovu is a cat without a tail. They well, cut the tails of the cats to save a time in the winter time to open the door for the cat to get out when the <laughs> cat wants to get out of home. So they need to save uh, uh, warm air. <laughs> <laughs> Luba Boyanin, we've been learning a lot about Sofia, a lot about Bulgaria. It's great to have you visiting us. And if you're a tour guide and you're taking an American friend around your country for the first time, what is the, the most beautiful experience that you would want to be sure that they share with you? Um, I can bring my American guest first to the museum to see the Thracian goat. That's then the gold from the Thracian the people. The gold from the Thracian people, which is unique, amazing work. 
of uh, of the hands of people before the Christianity. From 500 came. BC or something. 500 like. and even we have one from 5000 BC. Okay. Goat. Then I can go to Rila Monastery, proudly uh-huh. to show them Rila how beautiful is the monastery. This to Orthodox the, painted monastery the high painted, up in the mountains. The very big one. Um, I can bring them to little small monasteries <laughs> where uh, they can film the charm and the mystery of Umberto Eco story. If you read the book of Umberto Eco, you know, the, the name the, in the, the name of the rose, yeah. or you can see the movie of uh, right. based on that book, uh, you can see the same things in Bulgaria. I don't know if you heard the, the, about uh, the book called Historian, the historian of Elizabeth Kostov. Have you heard about uh-huh. uh, that book? Uh, she is a New Yorker. A writer, uh-huh. and she created a story which also covered those little mysterious monasteries. So I can definitely bring my American friends to the small monasteries. Um, we can go to see one of the small or one or more of the beautiful villages we have in the mountains, like Koprishtisa, very difficult to pronounce, but this is a village that we are proud that in mid-19th century houses survived there. And you say you have a feeling that you are in the 19th century with the cobblestones. I can bring them to Plovdiv, of course, to the Black Sea coast if we have a time and opportunity. And I should not miss the traditional songs and dances because this is what we're proud for. And if I'm very polite, can you take me to your home and make me stuffed peppers with your kushkopek? Ah, uh, yes. But you have to be in the autumn. Otherwise, uh, when we have a good peppers... If we have okay. not a good peppers, you can just a taste we can take from the refrigerator as I'm... No, I want fresh peppers. <laughs> Kruskopek in the autumn. Great. <laughs> the best time to eat the stuffed peppers in Bulgaria. Luba Boyanin, thank you so much for joining us. How would I say uh, happy travels in Bulgarian? Štaslivo patuvane. Štaslivo? Štaslivo? Patuvane. Patuvane. Da. Bon voyage. What is that? Dubarpat, it means a good bon voyage. And if I want to say thank you, can I say blagodaria? Blagodaria. Blagodaria. We've been exploring Bulgaria with our friend from Bulgaria, Luba Boyanin. Blagodaria. Zanishtu. Radus mi beše, če bjah pri vas. I have no idea what they said, but it makes me smile. <laughs> I, say, I, was, I was happy to be with you. Thank you. Blagodaria. Blagodaria mnogo. <laughs> The frozen crevices where he learned to ice climb in Canada's Jasper National Park are now nothing but gravel. Up next, James Martin describes his incredible journey to document the power of the Earth's icy environments, from the tops of mountain ranges to the North and South Poles, and to tell us firsthand what he's seen happening to them. We'll explore the beauty and value of ice up next on Travel with Rick Steves. my work as I chase down the, the wonders of Europe, ice and mountains is a big part of that. And I was in Norway checking out the biggest uh, glacier remaining in northern Europe, the Jostedal Glacier, and I met glacier guides and mountaineers and enthusiasts who were taking groups around, and their world was changing. There's frankly kind of a glumness. They had morphed from mountaineers to evangelicals trying to warn people about the changing climate. There was a love of nature and a love of the glacier, and at the same time there was a sadness about a very tough struggle that we're in. Of course, lots of people are writing books about uh, climate change and everything. I've just found a book that describes the ice caps and the glaciers of this world, and it reads like a love story. And we're joined by the man who wrote it, James Martin, to talk about his new book, Planet Ice. James, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Planet Ice. 
it really does read like a love story. And, and you say, when I was growing up, I fell hard for ice, dazzled and awestruck. Tell us about that. Well, from an early age, I was uh, smitten by the mountains, and I, uh, I took every opportunity to visit the wildest places I could, starting with the Cascades and the Sierra and extending out to um, uh, the Himalaya and, and beyond. It's funny you mention that because as a boy, I remember walking down a frozen river um, by our cabin up in the Cascade Mountains, and just it was a wonderland of ice, and I could see that you could become enamored with ice. Yes, exactly. And at first, I was most interested in what ice had already accomplished, such as the carving of Yosemite Valley and shaping the landscape of the mountains. But the longer I was in, in the mountains, I started to become interested in ice itself and study how it moved and how it operated. Now, you're a photographer, and this book is a coffee table book with just breathtaking photography. And you've collaborated with a bunch of uh, experts in different aspects of environment and and natural wonders and so on to put together a fascinating collection of essays Mm -hmm. illustrated by your beautiful work. You said you traveled like uh, pinballed all around the world to make the book. That's right. Tell me some of the places you traveled in order to make this book. Well, I went to places where people wouldn't expect ice to be a major component, such as the equator. I went to Ecuador, Peru, uh, the mountains of the moon on the Congo, uh, Uganda border, climbed Kilimanjaro, went to the base camp of Everest and beyond. And of course, I went to uh, the major ice sheets of Antarctica and Greenland. Now, ice will be in the news for years to come. You write in your book, uh, Global Warming. All agree that it's happening, but consensus falls apart when it comes to predicting its effects on our future. Will the sea level rise a couple inches or many feet? Can we expect milder winters or desertification? Will hundreds of millions die or just be inconvenienced? Only time will tell. Yes, I I think that's true. So far, unfortunately, most of the predictions have been conservative. And so we've had much more rapid loss of ice than even the alarmists um, were predicting in the 70s. So you have to be kind of concerned about credibility here. If you just say hundreds of millions of people are going to die, it's hard to handle that. Right. But if you say, well, you're just going to have to put on sunscreen and you won't be able to ski as long as you thought, then people won't take the issue seriously enough. This book, to me, reads not like a call to arms. It just, again, it reads like a love story to ice. It just lets you understand the beauty of this part of our environment. Yes. And when you do fall in love with that or appreciate that, then you realize that if it is indeed threatened, it's, it's worth something to, to, to take care of. You described the way penguins huddle in the winter and then slowly start to circulate. Tell, yes. Just paint a picture of that, would you? Well, that, that is the emperor penguins, which everyone knows from March of the Penguins. And they have a survival behavior of clustering in the dark when it's 40, 50, 70 uh, degrees below zero. And each one takes his turn on, on the outside edge before going in to warm up again. It's, it, it's an amazing adaptation. So it's like a ball of penguin manatee. Exactly. And the, outer, <laughs> and the outer surface of this community gets the brunt of the weather. Yes. And slowly they revolve and circulate so that most of the community gets the warmth provided by those tough ones on the outer. outer well, area. everyone has to take their turn on the outside. Wow. So it's, it's, it's flowing like water. Now, you also talk as a mountaineer. You're a mountain climber. You've mm-hmm. done your fair share of climbing up frozen rivers, I suppose. Yeah, frozen waterfalls, yes. Frozen waterfalls. Mm-hmm. God, the picture you got in there is just... That one picture, this guy sees... It's at least straight up. It might even be, what do you call it, when it's leaning out? Overhanging a little bit. Overhanging a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this guy, I I don't know where the bottom of the picture is, but if he he fell off of his icicle, he'd die. And he's got two ice axes, and Mm -hmm. he's got spikes on his shoes, right? Right, right. He has crampons on. And uh, for him, that's easy. If you can just climb your way up with strong arms with those axes, Uh you can reasonably pull yourself up a frozen waterfall. Absolutely. It's not dangerous if you know what you're doing? Um, well, I guess that's a relative term. It's, yeah, it's, it's definitely a relative term. The, the trouble with waterfalls is they tend to be in places where there are avalanches. So you, yeah. you need to go on the right day. Because you don't want your icicle to break. No, you don't. Some climbers have ridden icicles all the way to the bottom. When pinned down, apparently on an icy rock face, you wrote, high winds and sub-zero temperatures leave little room for error, and nothing strips away the unnecessary like the prospect of death. <laughs> Our world was a few feet of ice. The past and the future ceased to exist. Each such experience has acted like a reset button. Yeah, Tell right. me more about that. Well, somebody said there's, there's nothing like the prospect of being hanged in the morning to concentrate your attention. And uh, that's certainly what happens when you get yourself in situations like that. It, so, you know, you've got yourself in a little bit of a bind. It's mm-hmm. okay if you, if you keep your composure. That's all you can do is keep your composure. You've got to. There's no past. There's no future. Yes. There's right now. It's be here now. And you have clarity. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, absolute focus. You and, and, have clarity. And, Whoa. And you tend to get very, very calm. Do you? I do. That's why you're still here. I think so. In part, it's primarily luck. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking Planet Ice. That's the new book written by James Martin. This is a beautiful collection of photographs. If nothing else, it'd be worth it just for paging through these photographs and seeing the variety of the ice on this planet and the light. As a photographer, James, you must have had sort of a, an agenda with what you were taking. Did you set out to show ice connecting with nature or the grandeur of ice or the tragedy of the loss of ice or, or what motivated you as a photographer? While those things were important to me, one, one thing I really wanted to do was to present a unified vision. Most of the books on ice were um, a collection of photographs from various photographers and they, they didn't show a, a single point of view and I wanted to do that. And I didn't want it to be fully documentary either. I wanted to show pure form because ice twists and fractures into all sorts of amazing shapes. And when it gets thin, it um, acts like a stained glass window of blues. And I wanted to focus on that. And as a photographer, I love it when photographers explain how they're chasing the light and light is their, mm -hmm. their, their paint and so on. Yes. How are you aware as a photographer of light differently when you're photographing ice than when if you're photographing trees and cathedrals and urban scenes? You're always struggling with too much white, and it's, it's very easy to compensate for that and get a proper exposure. But what you're looking for is when the light has a chance to play within the ice itself. And so backlit is very important, and very, very low light where the color is extra saturated is also a great opportunity. And then probably twilight. Is this, is this cover shot twilight with the rich yes. rose tint? Yes, uh, yes that's, that's about midnight. Come on, what kind of cheesy filter did you have? <laughs> Huh? That's provided by nature. Nature's cheesy filter. I yes. love it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Martin. His new book is called Planet Ice. James, you collaborated with a lot of experts who, who really did the lion's share of the writing in this book. Mm -hmm. How did you select these people? What was your... I mean, you're a beautiful writer. I read all the essays you wrote in this, but these guys bring a different dimension to it. What was your, what was your hope there? I wanted to have um, authoritative voices. And although I'm passionate about the subject, there's no way that I'm an expert in the way these gentlemen were. Richard Alley, for example, is probably the preeminent ice core researcher in the world. He knows more about climate over the last 500,000 years than anybody. Avon Chouinard is a famous ice climber and someone that I've encountered for decades. And uh, he's also irascible and blunt, and I really wanted him to write for me because I knew he was angry because some of his uh, most famous ice climbs have disappeared. And I suppose they were all attracted to your ability to capture it photographically and uh, let their writing take on that extra dimension that a beautiful photograph will give it. I think that's why everybody said yes. <laughs> I think that's a nice, nice combination, yeah. a nice collaboration. You wrote, or one of your writers wrote, As my understanding of ice has deepened, I have grasped how ice and climate interact and profoundly influence ecosystems and human civilization, especially as we are altering this ancient balance. Mm -hmm. Was that your writing? That sounds like me. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> so you gain an appreciation, obviously. Now, you talked about the third pole, the Himalayas. Yes. And uh, what, what, in Sanskrit, Himalaya, abode of snow. Yes. Well, outside of the polar regions, it, it's the largest uh, assemblage of ice we have. And you mentioned half the world's water supply, by some estimates, comes from the Himalayan ice cap. Yes, exactly. Well, there's a, any idiot can figure out the consequences of uh, when that goes. And we're seeing it happen right now. Uh, it's, it's very likely that the Ganges will be dry for part of the year because that, the glacier that feeds it is retreating so rapidly. So I hate to be alarmist, but my concern is 100 million climate refugees when Bangladesh goes underwater. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I realize they're heading north, and the north is becoming dry yes. and, and, and becoming arid. Yes. And you've got yourself between a, um, a pretty uh, a wet rock and a very dry hard spot. Exactly. And that's, that's just the subcontinent. Uh, China's going to have exactly the same problems. Okay, let's just make it even worse. All right. When the permafrost melts, it unleashes methane, and that accelerates global warming. Right. It's part of a feedback loop. Just as when we lose the sea ice in the North Pole, we lose the reflection of heat back into space. It gets warmer and warmer. And that's the other thing that is so clear to me, and I, I don't have a, a, a bit of aptitude for science, but, but white stuff reflects and dark stuff doesn't reflect. Exactly. So you're trying to reflect as much sunlight as possible, and when the big shiny white cap on this little planet of ours is gone, mm -hmm. as it is already, you can, you can take your boat all the way to the North Pole in the middle of the summer now, I guess. Yeah. Um, when that's gone, we absorb more heat. Yes. That's how come we're having this acceleration, in, in my view. Can't you take, like, uh, a little bit of money that we're putting into other areas of national security and make a big, huge, white reflective tarp the size of Greenland? 
Well, that's one way to do it. I mean, really, we, we could do that. We could make a big white reflective tarp that does what the ice cap does mm-hmm. and build it. Um, You'd well, have to get all the penguins out first so they wouldn't get all hot and muggy. Well, it's, it's uh, actually, we, we wouldn't have a problem with that since there aren't any penguins right. in the north. <laughs> <laughs> but is that, is that feasible? Well, uh, so far we've lost uh, about a million square miles of ice. That's equivalent to Texas, California, and Alaska. See, they do have reflective uh, covers over the ice fields in the Alps. Yes. I've yes. seen them. Yes. And it's just to save what ice is left. I mean, if you're going to pay to go into an ice cave, mm-hmm. you want an ice cave there tomorrow. So right. cover it up when nobody's looking. That's right. Wow. But I want to cover Greenland with a big reflective white tarp until we figure this out. Uh-huh. <laughs> Will you help me? <laughs> uh, I think it would have to float. So let's, let's, okay. put, it, let's put it over well, the Arctic Ocean. Okay. Well, let's, that's a pretty defeatist attitude. We could, <laughs> we could actually let, let, let the ice do it. Now, you said there's more ice on the South Pole because it sits on land. I mean, the yeah. South Pole and the North Pole logically should be the same temperature. But the ice is melting quicker yeah. in the north than in the south because the south sits on land? Well, what, what you have in the north is sea ice, which is maybe 6, 10 feet thick, whereas in Antarctica, it's a couple miles thick. A couple miles thick? Yes. Ah, that we don't have anything to worry about. Um, well, the sea level alarmists are probably overstating things. Uh, okay. if, if, we, if, we, if we lost all of that, uh, we'd be underwater here. In, if we lost the South Pole. The South Pole the, in the Greenland. South, the ice cap, yeah. yeah. We'd be underwater right here. Yeah. Well, we're on Fifth Avenue here, so we're okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good. Now, what do you say to an unemployed person who's so tired of hearing about, you know, the endangered polar bear and those cute penguins, and, and he just needs a job, and to him, environmentalism threatens his job? Well, I think that's an absurd point of view uh, because there's so many opportunities because of the new needs. New technologies need to be uh, invented and, and promulgated, so I, I can't see that at all. In other words, if you care about jobs... Yes. You'd get on the bandwagon. Exactly. So you don't so. think the green, what do you call it, the green uh, economy and stuff is is, uh, is is just a pipe dream? No. I, th- I think whatever country uh, dominates in that area will rule the world economically. Boy, isn't that a fun challenge. Yes. Good for you. <laughs> Jennifer in San Francisco emailed us, and she writes, uh, During recent flights I've taken to Europe, it's perfectly visible. As the plane flies over Iceland, how much more brown earth we see as opposed to massive snow-covered territory I used to see through the windows. How do we get people to get on board and care about this? Um, What's your take on that? If you fly over Iceland, do you see less ice now than you used to? Um, it would be pretty difficult to, to really perceive it. There has been loss, but it's, it's not dramatic. Like so what she's looking at is she's, she's, something she's, seasonal. she's missing it. Yeah, it's a seasonal thing. Yeah. So that's a, it's a confusing thing because anybody who, who wants to um, stall the action on this is, is going to point out these little um, inconsistencies in the alarmist's case. Right. Now, are there certain places where the ice is receding quicker and other places where the ice is just barely receding and you could arguably call it a um, pendulum kind of thing? If you had a very uh, local view, you, you could certainly say that. The Perito Marino Glacier in Patagonia is very stable. It doesn't appear to be moving at all or even advancing slightly. But then in, in Greenland, you have the Ilulisat Glacier, which is flowing 35 meters a day because it's being lubricated by meltwater. But it's receding faster than that. So you can see what's happening. It's just So it's going downhill 35 meters a day, but it's actually melting faster than that. So the net change is backwards. Exactly. Isn't that an image? Yes. Now, I was just researching in Norway. And, you know, when I write a guidebook to Norway, it's just a great opportunity to go to the biggest glacier, that Jostedal Glacier. Mm-hmm. And I spent a day going to the Boyabreen Glacier and a day going to the Nygardsbreen Glacier. Boyabreen went up there, and these people are, it's their livelihood, so they're not going to tell you, hey, there's no more glacier here. But you go all the way up to the head of the glacier, and all you do is you've got a lake, which is that color of glacier water, and you got bare rocks, and you look up into the mountains where the, at the receding glacier. Mm-hmm. And I just feel a wind. There's usually a wind at the bottom of a glacier or something right. like that, isn't there? Right. And then I went to Nygardsbreen, and you can actually walk on Nygardsbreen, and it's quite an um, inspirational thing to walk on a glacier and feel the power of that. Mm-hmm. But also you hear the melt. Yes. It's a roar of a melt. Yes. It's named Nygardsbreen. That means the, uh, I think Breen is tongue. Nygard is the ninth farm. And it went as far as the ninth farm when it was, ah. when it was going forward into the valley. It killed eight farms. It stopped at the ninth farm and it's been receding ever since. Yes. And today you got to get in your car and drive to get to that ninth farm that at one time was at the point of the glacier. But again, talking with these naturalists, they didn't get into the. They're just um, like riverboat captains or ski bums or something. These are like outdoorsmen, you know, and, right. and they take these quasi-adventure tours. And they have become serious about this. And all of a sudden, their tour has morphed into sort of a, a wake-up call for seeing what's happening to our planet. Well, 
It was a personal experience that set me on the path of doing this book. I learned to ice climb in the Athabasca Glacier by rappelling into the glacier in 1975. And when I went back a few years ago, the place where I learned to ice climb was just a boulder field. that You couldn't see the toe of the glacier anymore. It had receded a quarter mile or half a mile. And you dedicated your book to Joe Van Oss, and you say, who brought me to the Emperor Penguins and South Georgia Island and changed the course of my life. Yes. How did Joe change your life then? Joe has a, a photo tour business uh-huh. um, based on Vashon Island, Washington, and he was taking people to um, the Weddell Sea to see the emperors. He had an extra berth, and he said, if I could show up in uh, the southern tip of South America, that I could get on the boat for free. And next thing I knew, I was uh, surrounded by emperor penguins after a really rough and you, run. you weren't that passionate about this before that? I was passionate about mountains and mountain ice, but uh, I, I became totally bowled over by what I saw in Antarctica. It takes an experience like that, thanks to people like Joe, who take their friends and show them something that really needs to be shown. Exactly. And that's what you're doing with your book. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with James Martin, his new book, Planet Ice. James, I want to just finish with the, reading the last paragraph in your, in your beautiful book. I also hope that Planet Ice rouses people to act, to insist that our governments rise to the challenge of global warming and reverse course, thus preserving the beauty and health of our planet and enriching our lives. Beauty sustains us. It snaps us awake, silencing the techno-chatter in our heads. With commitment and action, this love story of mine could become a tale of global passion between people and ice. Awed by ice's power and amazed by its beauty, we might even give the story a happy ending. Well, I certainly hope so. That's a positive way to finish this. (laughs) James, best wishes with your work, and and thank you for this wonderful coffee table book showing the, the wonders of the ice on this planet of ours. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I walk the world on thin ice And I walk out further and further on the sands Don't hesitate, don't think twice It's only ice It's only ice Watch out for cracks beneath your feet And steps off me Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.